up, Poison Pals? Welcome back to another episode of That Shit is Poison with your hosts, Megan Gesner. And Harini Bot. And we hope you are having an excellent day today. We are recording on a lovely and sunny Sunday. Nice. Sunny Sunday afternoon in sunny yes. San Diego. It yeah. is what? <laughs> it is a little hot. Yeah. Oh, man. I had like one of those things just now. Like I was eating. Mm-hmm. I was eating my lunch before we recorded yeah. and I got suddenly very hot Dude. and then really angry. And I was like, mom, it's so hot. <laughs> and she's like, calm down. I was like, can you put the AC? Like I had a panic moment. She was like, just put the fan on. And she like booped on. And I was like, <sighs> Dude, that's funny you said that. Like before this recording, I too was eating my lunch and my yeah. lunch was a hefty breakfast burrito. And oh, as I yes. was eating it, like, even though my house is pretty cool, as I was mm-hmm. eating it, I got that that hot flash. Like, I felt like suddenly yeah. all my pores opened and all this heat, like, <laughs> escaped onto my skin. And I was like, yes. I don't know. Yes. I don't know if this is the meat sweats or if it's just like I'm <laughs> eating and my body is just like, here's all this energy. Boom. And yeah, I, I felt the same thing. I felt so hot and uncomfortable for a moment. I, I literally Dude. had to put my burrito down. I was like, I don't feel good. I know. Yes, that's exactly how I felt. That's so weird. What if we felt at the same time? Dude. dude. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Because like it all, like exactly you described it perfectly. Like Mm -hmm. there was suddenly like sweat on my skin and everything just got really hot. And I felt so immediately uncomfortable. And I just like shrieked (laughs) at my mom. She took it out Uh, on mom. Yeah, I was like, it's hot. (laughs) Because sometimes like my mom is so... Oh, God, she can probably hear me. <laughs> my mom is like so, what do you call it? Like, she doesn't like leaving the AC on for that long. Mm, she's like, it's yeah, wasting yeah. money. But yeah, we yeah. got, we just got installed some solar panels literally nice. last week. So I don't want to hear it. I'm going to leave the AC <laughs> on for three days straight. <laughs> yeah, make use of those Anyways. solar panels for sure. That's yeah, yeah, funny. exactly. No more excuses. Because <laughs> it yeah. is getting hotter by the second in San Diego. Yeah, and my and where I work in my house, like where I have my office set up, it's mm-hmm. my brother's old room. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I sit right next to the windows. So it just mm-hmm. becomes a greenhouse. The heat rises. I'm on the second floor. Plus, I got yeah, the yeah. windows right in front of me. I'm baking in here. <laughs> you got to like get those blackout curtains. Actually, yeah, it seems counterintuitive. But my mom, because growing up in Sacramento is mm-hmm. like it just gets, I think, probably hotter than San Diego. We don't have any coastal breezes. Oh, absolutely. So, but my mom, she would like we knew the upstairs would get hot. So we would close mm-hmm. all the curtains, shut all the windows, close all the blinds to so just keep it like a cave. <laughs> and it worked. And I'm like, it seems counterintuitive not to let any air in. But like yeah, the air was yeah. so hot anyway, like to open a That's window right. would just cause hot air to come inside. <laughs> so we just close it all up. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Just like don't let yourself be seen by the outside. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I I think I need to get curtains, but I can't do that during work hours because then I'll just be like a black blob on the screen. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I got a ring light for work. And actually, this was a recommendation by work. They were like, Mm. we recommend you guys get a ring light so that you guys have the best lighting for for virtual meetings, just to be professional. So you're not like in a dark hole, you know, or if the lighting is bad. This ensures you have even lighting. And I'm like, hey, I... We'll expense that <laughs> gladly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. So, they know what's up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we got the whole setup. I have my ring light over there. 
But anyways, nice. I was I was telling Megan before we recorded that this is going to be a long one, so that is enough chit chat for now. Mm-hmm. We're gonna get right we're gonna get right into no it. No more no more dilly dallying. Let's do <laughs> this. <laughs> all right, all right, here we go. Buckle in, y'all. <laughs> Harini, it is time for you to pick your poison. All right, buckle in because this is a <laughs> long one, but I hope that it's a good one. I think the story is very very interesting and it brings together a lot of things i'm interested in mm. so true crime of course yes. art history antiques Ooh. forensic analysis oh man we about mormonism. to go into mormonism an- <laughs> oh okay i was a like we about things. to go go into an agatha christie novel that involves it, mormonism on some level. oh yeah it sure does it sure does and yeah the reason why I am doing this story was because I came across it on Netflix. I think oh. I vaguely heard of this story a while ago, but then I didn't realize it has a Netflix series. Mm. And when I was about to do this episode, I was like, wait, there's a Netflix series. So then I watched it and I just binge watched all of it last night and was yeah. like taking notes. Like this is probably the wow. most research I've done on Netflix. So, that sounds bad to say, but there's yeah. there's a lot going on here. Yeah, yeah. What's but, the name of the Netflix yeah. documentary? I feel like I know mm-hmm. it. It's called Murder Among the Mormons. Okay, so I tried to watch that, and I just did not get around to finishing it. I think I probably stopped in the first episode. I don't know why I was distracted, but it was like something that popped up, and I was like, oh, I should watch, and then I didn't. <laughs> so I'm excited yeah. to hear you tell me about what this has to do with poison and all that (laughs) yes yes and so i will preface there's not necessarily a traditional poison in this story i'm coming Mm -hmm. at it from a lens of which is also why we do this podcast but also Mm -hmm. like the forensic analysis that Mm -hmm. comes with true crime in the sense Mm -hmm. of how do people solve major crimes through science Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So that's going to be kind of the theme of the episode. Plus, there is some toxicology at the end, but I would say cool. the majority is a forensic lens focus. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. Okay. And Megan, to your point of not finishing even the first episode, I totally mm-hmm. get it because I think if I had just come across this on my own, I probably wouldn't even press play, mm-hmm. to be honest. <laughs> but yeah. I had I had listened to this story in full on a different podcast like a long, long time ago. And because of that introduction, I was like, oh, this is like a good story. And that's what made me want to watch the whole series. So I will tell you the full story. But Poison Pals, I highly, highly recommend if you like the story to go watch the Netflix series uh, Murder Among Mormons because it's very well done. Okay, let's get into it. On a morning in October, shortly after 8 a.m., a package was sent to a rare Mormon document collector and stockbroker by the name of Steve Christensen. The package arrives at Steve's workplace in Salt Lake City. Steve goes to pick it up, and it explodes in his hands, killing him instantly. Mm. Steve was 31 years old. Whoa. Starting off with a bang. Yeah, literally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Three hours later... A woman named Kathy Sheets. She is the wife of Steve's former employer. She receives a package at their home. Kathy was a housewife and was the only one at home at the time. So she picks up the package. It explodes in her hands and kills her instantly. Kathy was 50 years old. Was this... Okay, I know we literally just started. <laughs> no, 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 no. Please they, interrupt me. Did they get the packages simultaneously? 
you might have just said this simultaneously like like how or did he already pass away and she knew about that i'm like like mm-hmm. i'm like what's the timeline passed yeah what's the timeline again yeah yeah Re- exactly yeah yeah so steve mm-hmm. gets a package at 8 a.m one hour okay. later of that package being received by steve okay kathy receives a package so it's gotcha. almost like okay, so boom boom right after one another two- yeah, too short of an amount of time for her to right. be wary of a random package. Got it. Exactly. Okay. Got exactly. It, it. She had no idea what was going on. There was not even, like, the news has not even picked it up. I don't even think the 911 has even come to Steve to assess the damage, right? It's just happening all at once. So, yeah. So, one hour later, Kathy Sheets picks up the package. She dies. The next day, a man named Mark Hoffman was coming home, or he was coming back from a meeting to his car. He opens the door to his Toyota sports car and there's a package that falls from the seat to the floor. I guess like when he opened his door, it jostled the package. When Mark reaches for the package, it explodes, but it doesn't kill him. His kneecap is completely blown off. His eardrum is ruptured. I know. And shrapnel basically checkers his body, but he survives. Barely. I mean, obviously he's very, he's going to be in a lot of damage, but he will survive. As you might imagine, panic ensues like wildfire in the Mormon community specifically because the one link that stood out between the three of them was that they were all prominent figures or were related to prominent figures at the Mormon Church of Latter-day Saints. So, like I said, Mark Hoffman, he survives and he's actually in pretty decent shape for someone who, you know, just had a bomb explode in their face. So he was able to recount the details of the incident to the police. There were detectives in charge of the case, and one of them interviews Hoffman. Hoffman gives his recounting of what happened to him, but the detective feels like something didn't add up with Hoffman's account. The detective cross-references Hoffman's story with the bomb squad. The bomb squad informs the detective that the package could not have quote-unquote fallen to the floor. They do their magical mathematical bomb trajectory analysis that they do. And based on the car's remains, the bomb didn't explode on the front seat at all. Furthermore, the evidence suggests that Hoffman had to have been inside the car when the bomb went off and was not climbing into the car, as he said. In the grand scheme of things, this was truthfully a small discrepancy. But for the detective, it was very interesting because why would Hoffman lie about that small detail, right? Totally. Yeah. But also, like, I mean, I feel like I know what that what that like question implies. But also, I'm mm-hmm. like, well, if someone did like genuinely was innocently targeted, and they didn't end up dying. Mm-hmm. You know, they had this bomb happen, all that. Like, you could have like a miss remembrance of the what happened in some way you know from right the PTSD. oh sure but like i get i get what the question i get why they're kind of suspicious of like his account is not accurate right it was it's just like an odd detail to lie about because there doesn't seem to be like what's the difference between you already in your car versus you being outside of your car like it shouldn't matter as much like you're still a victim in the situation right so why lie that's a good point that's a good point mm-hmm. yeah so i think that's kind of where they're coming from Then it gets more interesting. Among the charred remains of Hoffman's car was a charred sheet of ancient papyrus, which seemed to have hieroglyphics on it. Detectives were working on was missing rare historical artifacts from a certain McClellan collection. So could this be part of that collection is the question. Hmm. 
Then, in the trunk of Hoffman's car was a section of a pipe, which was very much like the pipe used in the bombs. Hmm. It's pretty much at this point that Hoffman stopped being a victim and became a prime suspect. And this is also where our story really begins. So that's kind of an intro. So Lex zero in on Mark Hoffman from the very beginning. So Hoffman was born and raised in Salt Lake City in 1954 to very devout Mormon parents. His dad was very strict. And just to give you a sense of how religious they were, when Mark was older with kids of his own, Mark's dad comes over to his home and there were children's books on the floor with pictures of dinosaurs on the cover. His dad gets visibly upset by seeing this and even yells at his son Mark for having books that promote evolution, which just like, whoa, (laughs) blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, I think also what I want to say before I continue, I am absolutely not an expert on the Mormon religion or Latter-day Saints or anything like that. So this has all been a huge education for me that I find very, very interesting. I just want everyone to know that I'm not trying to bash any kind of religion. These are all coming from my sources, which I did not say, which I'll go back and say. But these are all coming from my sources and from the Netflix series that I watch. So if I say anything that is wrong about the religion or anything that is factually incorrect, please, Poison Pals, email us. We, we're just here to learn. So yeah. So let me actually go back really quickly. Sorry to interrupt, but the sources. So I got sources from Wiki, Deseret News, Utah History Encyclopedia, Esquire, the Smithsonian, Nobelprize.org, NCBI, and then the Netflix series. Okay, so back to the story. Nothing notable really happens in his childhood aside from the fact that he grew up very devout Mormon, but he does start collecting coins at 12 years old. For most, this is a pretty innocuous hobby, but by 15 years old, Hoffman becomes enticed with the concept of rare items and what exactly makes a coin valuable, quote unquote, right? So very quickly, he realizes that the difference between a valuable coin and an ordinary coin is very subtle, so subtle that he just might be able to reproduce this as a forgery. Hmm. Remind you, he's 12 years old. Right, right. So as an experiment, he takes an ordinary coin and then he electroplates a D on it, which I don't really know what that means, but he electroplates a D on a bare spot on the coin and he raises it to a certain height, which I guess for uh, rare coins, they have that D and it's kind of raised to a certain level. So in his 12-year-old mind, he's like, oh, what if I just raise it even higher? That means it'll be more valuable, you know? So that's what he does. Are you talking about like the the D on the coin is a little bit more um, prevalent? Okay, okay. Mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. like, I wasn't sure if you meant height as in like the the actual height of the coin itself is like thicker? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. The actual like just the prominence of the D on the coin. Gotcha, gotcha. So in his mind, like, this is going to be even more valuable, even more rare. So then he brings this forged coin to a coin dealer, the shop owner. He studies it and he believes it to be real. So he offers him thousands of dollars for this coin if it passes an inspection by the U.S. Treasury Department. This kid, without skipping a beat, was like, yeah, go for it. Send it in. <laughs> and so the U.S. Treasury wow. gets this coin. I know they get the coin and they authenticate this coin. Wow. And Hoffman tells himself. Like they, they fall for it? They believe it? Yeah. Yeah. They think oh, wow. they're like, this is absolutely real. You know. Wow. Good on you for finding this coin. Whatever. Right. And mm-hmm. so Hoffman tells himself, 
if the treasury claims it to be genuine, then it is genuine by definition. Hmm. Which, you know, it's true, right? Like if someone right. believes it to be true with that kind of authority, then who who is to say, who is to argue with you? It therefore is now genuine, no right. matter is by like, what means, right? Ex- yeah, uh, totally. Because I'm like, if it falls under their definition of that make mm-hmm. it a genuine coin, therefore it is genuine. I think the only thing that would negate that is like the time of when a coin is made but i'm like i just mm-hmm. assume that rare equals older you know what Same. i mean yeah, uh, yeah but agreed i'm not a rare coin expert i'm sure there are rare, rare coins made today mm-hmm. that are like contemporary but whatever anyway yeah i don't really that's, know that's pretty amazing yeah yeah but i I, think, I agree with yeah. that that his mindset of like hey if they authenticate it even though i'm the one who made it like yeah that's by their definition so Okay. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I'm like, I can't argue with that one for sure. Okay. So that was his early life. But to be able to understand the rest of the story, I will do a brief overview of the history of the Latter-day Saints and the Mormon Church, because this comes into a huge play. Of course, Murder Among Mormons, it has a lot to do with the story. So the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, originated in New York City in the early 19th century by a man named Joseph Smith. So according to the LDS, so I'm going to abbreviate Latter-day Saints to LDS. So according to the LDS tradition, an angel named Moroni visited a poor farmer by the name of Joseph Smith and told him to dig up a hidden book in the ground with pages that were made out of gold. And this is known as the gold plates. The writing in this book was in an ancient language that's you know, neither you or I would be able to understand, but Smith was a chosen prophet of God and therefore was able to divinely translate this book into a text Mm. that we would all be able to understand, which would later become known as the Book of Mormon. Mm. This is in the mid to late 19th century that this is all happening, right? Mm -hmm. This is when Joseph Smith was alive, et cetera, et cetera. When you think about religion as a whole, religion was always founded somewhere else like you don't i'm sure there's ancient american religions and things like that but in terms of you know something that's based out of christianity everything was happening outside of the americas right so for people in the u.s at this time the idea of a direct divine experience that was happening in the united states was very attractive to americans and thus Mm -hmm. this religious group began to grow But as much as people were attracted to the LDS, just as many were appalled by it, Joseph Smith would be later murdered by anti-Mormon mobs in 1944 by people who saw him as this power craze con man who used Mm. magic and manipulation to divinely sanction really unchristian-like ideals such as polygamy. They thought of it as like this polygamous cult within the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then they're just kind of slapping like religion on top of it. Not saying that's what it is at all. This is just coming from the sources. Right. But with all things, usually the reality lies somewhere between the extremes. So Mm -hmm. in 1834, Mormons found the bones of Zelf, who was an Mm -hmm. ancient Lamanite American. So a Lamanite, according to the ancient text of the Book of Mormon, are one of four ancient peoples who settled in the Americas. And Native Americans are said to be descendants of these people. Hmm. So it's just like a very sacred person or artifact Hmm. of their religion, of the Mormon religion. Just keep all of that in mind. I think that's good enough for Hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So 
part of the Mormon religion, which I think most people know, is missionary work. So when Mm. Hoffman was 19 years old, he goes to Bristol, England on a mission. And this is a really interesting time, I think, for for most people who are Mormon, and especially him, because he this is in like the late 70s, and he's living, he was born and raised very devout in Utah. Most other people around him are also Mormon, so they kind of live in this bubble where they don't really know much of the outside world. So for this is his first time leaving this bubble and going to see like, I don't know, like a metropolitan city that is like mm-hmm. England or London, right? So it's just a time that a lot of people question their faith when they're able to go outside and travel like this. And that's exactly what Mark Hoffman does as well. He's honestly doing less missionary work and more historical digging on rare Mormon artifacts. So he spends most of his days in this Mormon library in England trying to find information on the origins of the religion. Mm. So I told you earlier that there were many people who felt that Joseph Smith was sort of a charlatan, and there's various texts that came about to, pr- to provide evidence against him, which Hoffman came across in this library. Hmm. I would say this affected Hoffman pretty deeply. He was reading all these texts that provided evidence and kind of denounced Joseph Smith as not really like actually finding the gold plates, like the gold plates don't even exist, that none of these things are really true. That really made him feel disillusioned with this religion that he was brought up on and made him angry honestly at the lds Mm. so much so that he began to target the lds church and its leadership for their crimes quote unquote Mm. so hoffman returns to utah after this mission he marries his wife doralee olds in 1979 and it was around then that he committed his first crime of forgery unclear if it was because he was mad at the church or he needed the money or maybe a little bit of both so in the spring of 1980, Dorley comes home to find her husband thumbing through this 1688 King James Bible that he said he got in mm. England while on mission. So Dorley sits at the table. She's gingerly going through the book and tries to pull apart the pages because some of them were stuck together. And mm-hmm. then between one of the pages was a folded sheet of paper encased in this hard glue-like adhesive. She calls out to her husband, Mark, and is like, hey, Mark, there's something in this Bible, like, have you seen this? Hmm. And he's like, no. So he comes over and the glue makes it a little bit hard to read. But from what they can make out at the bottom of this paper was a signature that looked a hell of a lot like Joseph Smith's. Wow. They already so, had a record at that mm-hmm. at that time of what Joseph Smith's handwriting and signature looks like. Yeah. Okay. So I think the LDS church <laughs> has some originals of Joseph Smith's mm-hmm. writing and mm-hmm. then they have a lot of um, reproductions. But they, I think mm-hmm. there are a lot of samples of what his writing would right. look like. And I think okay. with the amount of research that Mark did, and even just, I guess, anyone who's you know of the Mormon religion, I'm sure they know what his signature might look like, is what I'm thinking. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, it looks a lot like Joseph Smith's signature. So the next day, Hoffman, with the encouragement of his wife, he takes the book to Utah mm-hmm. State University, where the researchers were... Com- completely shocked by the contents they believed Mm. hoffman had come across the original anthon transcript so there's a lot of stuff that we probably have never heard about so bear with me guys i will explain everything so quick synopsis on what the significance of the anthon transcript is so in 1828 charles anthon is a scholar and linguist at columbia university and he's approached by an early follower of the LDS to translate some characters that Smith originally translated from the Golden Plates. Mm-hmm. Nobody disputes that this meeting happened between Anton and the LDS member, 
but the results out of that meeting have been disputed for years because there's no evidence mm. that have come out like and nothing in writing or anything like mm-hmm. that right so this document given to Anthon was supposed to be the true characters that Joseph Smith himself translated from the golden plates wow and this document was thought to be lost or so everyone thought until it miraculously popped up in the 17th century Bible of King James in the hands mm. of Mark Hoffman to the Mormon church, the discovery of such a document would be considered priceless, right? So mm-hmm. Utah State mm-hmm. was over the moon at this find. Mark Hoffman would later divulge that he got the recipe for the ancient ink from a book he stole from the old library in England, as well as the pages to make them look old. But his mm. hoax goes beyond just ink and paper. Hoffman reproduces Joseph Smith's handwriting and spelling to a T imitating original examples that he found in the Utah archives, literally available to anybody. But Mm -hmm. the original document had a Mexican calendar on it as well, which Hoffman recreated by tracing a beer bottle. Wow. (laughs) Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, how did he supposed to be drinking (laughs) as a Mormon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is interesting. Yeah, because at the time, Utah laws, I'm assuming, I think at the time didn't sell alcohol in certain places like it would be hard to come by but i'm sure that he had access to yeah it somehow yeah go to another state i know know? i mean you can probably drive to another state from utah and easily procure something like that but yeah that that was Mm -hmm. a weird anecdote yeah what do you what do you mean by mexican calendar so like the original document was said to have a Mexican calendar on correct, it? Correct, correct. How do they know that? So I they so for all of the documents I will be discussing, and I'll let you know if mm-hmm. that's not the case, but for the majority of the right. documents I disclosed in this story, there are mm-hmm. reproductions of it. They just don't have the original. Got it. So everyone knows gotcha. what it looks like, but they don't have the but original some, piece. Yeah. Got it. At some point in time, that original piece was lost. Correct. Okay. Correct. So on all the reproductions, were they always... Re- reproducing like this Mexican calendar. What does that mean, Mexican calendar? I, so, I don't know what that means. I think, I don't know. The only thing I could think of is the Mormon yeah. religion. Like I said, the Lamanites and the, the descendants of mm-hmm. these ancient religions or ancient American peoples. Part mm-hmm. of ancient American culture is like the, I don't like the, like, you know, kind of like an Aztec Mayan situation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They have that those influences. Right, right. So I think part of those ancient peoples went off this mexican calendar so i I think that's why it was on there got it that is my best educated guess as to why it was on there gotcha gotcha i'm assuming like it's um yeah like indigenous some kind of indigenous way of yeah keeping time yes i understand it's it's like a circular it almost looks like a sundial like a stamp yeah Mm -hmm. yeah exactly like a dial it's a, a circular stamp and with figures in a circle which i assume that's the calendar yeah exactly that's exactly okay. right yeah so he recreated that recreated that right tracing a beer bottle and then he artificially oh aged i peach. see okay what? okay so when you what? i'm sorry i'm like trying to figure out when you said tracing a beer bottle i was like you mean the label but you oh. mean literally the butt the butt yeah, yeah, of the yeah. beer bottle yeah is a circle okay yes, yes, all yes. coming together okay, okay. <laughs> sorry that wasn't ex- i didn't explain that no, properly. no that makes sense yeah, so like, he traced the round bottom portion of the bottle to get that perfect circle, I to guess. He could have circle. used anything. He could have used any bottle, honestly. I know. So but didn't they I think have, um <laughs> what are those geometry tools called? The Oh my Atlanta. What is it? Not it, it's Poison not a circle. Circum- you know what I'm talking about. Oh my this is so irritating. <laughs> use them in high school geometry. It's, it's not a compass to make a it? circle. 
I think it might be a compass. It's you know what I'm uh, it's okay, okay, okay guys well, keep, you know the thing where you like pl- it's like in the center and then you just like whip it around <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah you have a singular oh, God, point thought, and then you it is called a compass you're right I think nice it job. is a compass right yeah yeah I, I googled it. it says compass I do feel like it has another name but I can't think of that right now I can't think of it either but compass is what's coming up I hated those, dude. I always would like stab myself dude, on accident with them. For sure. They're so pointy. <laughs> They're so pointy. so pointy. It's actually really yeah. dangerous to have a, as like a elementary or a middle schooler yeah. in your like you b- like pouch bag. Injury. Yeah. Oh, totally. Oh. Anyways. Okay. That was so, an aside. All right. <laughs> that was a big aside. <laughs> so he artificially aged the pages with ammonia or hydrogen peroxide to give it that mm. perfectly aged look. Mm-hmm. The LDS church was sold. They're like, yep, we want this shit. So they paid Hoffman more than 20K for just that single glue-filled document. <laughs> and mm-hmm. after Hoffman pulled this off, he dropped out of college and made a career out of it. He was wow. 19. Okay, so, At this point, he's 19 years so, old. Wow. So they, at this point in time, they don't suspect a thing. Like, he's oh, gotten no. away with this the scam. And they right now believe, like, oh, this is the Anthon um transcript they fully believe it and i i'm kind of skipping over some of the details because this is a quite of a quite a bit of a long story but they do go through an authentication process and it passes everything okay so they're interested they do authentication and like yep this is real and then they pay him the money wow yeah so in hoffman's eyes like he's done this twice now and he feels pretty confident at this point that yeah if the u.s treasury department and the entire latter-day saints church which is a big 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 organization will authenticate my pieces i think i can just do this full time which he does Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there were items he knew that the lds would pay massively for because they wanted to have ownership of them to show it off and also there were items he knew they would pay probably even more for to make sure those items never see the light of day anything that Mm -hmm. would desecrate the church so on and so forth between 1980 and 1985, Hoffman forged and sold hundreds of forged documents. He sold them lost documents by Joseph Smith, letters written by his mother, pages from the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. This goes on. But he didn't just stop at Mormon items. He also forged never-before-seen poems in the hands of Emily Dickinson, Mark Twain, wow. Abraham Lincoln, letters from George and Martha Washington, and again, list goes on, mm-hmm. all of which were authenticated by big names like Sotheby's, Smithsonian, etc. Wow. Wow, wow. If I remember correctly from the series, I think they name Mark Hoffman as one of the biggest forgers of our whole history. Wow. That is what I'm gathering. <laughs> like, Sorry, I, this is what I always do, Poison Pals. When Harini's telling me a story, I'm fully into it but to a point where i start to like google search things i'm like filling in mm-hmm, whatever mm-hmm. gaps i might have in my brain so now i'm looking at mark hoffman and it does blow my mind that i now i'm like i should have finished that netflix series like i should have <laughs> because i'm like um i had just watched catch me if you can mm, which is about yeah that other famous forgery guy right right who i literally just watched the movie and i forgot his name Maybe but uh, now that's why i'm like so intrigued because i'm like how did i not know about mark hoffman and like his wikipedia page is massive oh yeah pretty long so big so big so yeah 
So very interested, very impressed. There's only three anyway. one-hour episodes in the series. It's short, but it's very mm-hmm. good, easy to get through. I mean, like I said, I binge-watched it all last night after, like while having a, a watermelon vodka soda. <laughs> Just enjoying myself. Nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, so anyways, okay. His credentials and now established relationship in the field prevented buyers from scrutinizing his items more closely. And I think a part of these people also wanted these items to be real, of course. The reason why I bring that up is because the first question that people might have is, how did they not catch him? Like, why did they not do Mm. more due diligence and really try to really like dig into these items? Are these items real? And I think in the beginning, obviously they did. But then Mm -hmm. one develops a reputation when you are able to procure certain items and then they get authenticated, Mm -hmm. right? And his Mm -hmm. fame alone of being able to procure these items that no one has been able to procure since they were probably originally created by the people themselves. So they're just like, wow, you know, are you able to get a Mark Hoffman item? Like, that's amazing. You don't want to question that, right? Yeah. So true. But also, like, my brain goes... Is anyone asking, like, how is this one dude, Mark Hoffman, even getting all these random things? Like, how is he, like, like, as a museum, like, we've been trying to find this last item that would complete this collection for centuries. Totally. Like, this is a hypothetical situation. And then, like, suddenly there's this Mark Hoffman guy who's, who we've been hearing about, who's been managing to get all these items. And suddenly Mm. he has the one that we're looking for. Like, why is... I'm I'm assuming people are questioning it, yeah. but I get what you're saying. Like they're like they would rather take the chance of mm-hmm. oh if he has it, he's he's already built a reputation of right. like procuring these items. But it does make me think like one, how does one get into the business of if you're doing it the ethical way, procuring ancient <laughs> items, yeah. right, or like rare artifacts, yeah. Besides just being like a researcher on an anthropology site or something like that, does kind of like why isn't anybody questioning this in mm-hmm. terms of the LDS acceptance of the Anthon transcript that he forged? I can understand how knowing at least what I know very superficially mm-hmm. about the La- the history of the Latter Day Saints is that they've gone through a lot of ostracization. Like their community has suffered a lot because of non-acceptance from the outside world and i can see how to suddenly be approached by the stranger and be like hey i think i found something important for your religion Mm -hmm. that's like a huge thing like i can see why you wouldn't actually dig into that further and be Mm -hmm. like if it looks like it's authentic yes i can see the temptation to just be like we want to what's the word accept that as real because then it gives us credibility as an organization so i get that side of it but yeah, I'm like, how is no one being like, who is this Mark Hoffman guy? And why is he suddenly having like, I know, notes from Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> no, you're like, is he like just digging in the dirt? Yeah, no, I <laughs> like... completely agree. And to answer that question, well, first of all, um, this was from the docuseries, I believe, but about Emily Dickinson, like he found multiple, not just one, like he found multiple pages of a po- of unwritten or unpublished poems by Emily Dickinson's mm-hmm. hand. And I think she's from Boston or somewhere in Massachusetts. And that Society of Emily Dickinson in Massachusetts, they buy all these from him, authenticating them wow. all to be real. And I, I should I should say, when I say that they don't scrutinize 
these claims further that he brings forward mm-hmm. i'm not saying that they just are like cool let me sign the check done deal like right. they do an authentication process for every single item but i would say it's a cursory yeah. authentication process they're not right. doing a full right. deep dive every single time like they should right and right to answer your second question megan like how would someone who's not trying to cheat the system most of these items are found in libraries in bookstores that's, that's what he what finds he sa- them okay I see. He's just like, hey, I just go to a bunch of libraries and I find them mm-hmm. in texts that like no one's doing the work to really Correct. dig into. Okay. Correct. I can see how that's like uh, sellable as a lie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, he'll mm-hmm. go to these really old bookstores that he knows like or it's not like anything that's very organized. You kind of have to do the work mm-hmm. and dig and just go through all right, their archives right. and their files. And if you happen to find something, you can wind up paying 10, 20 bucks for something that is worth, you know, a million you know so that's right, kind of how right. he comes across these items and i'll get more into that uh as we go okay. along so like i said his credentials prevent people from really scrutinizing these items further and this part is what i learned the most about in the series is i learned a lot about mormon people in general but also about this rare document world like the people who deal with rare documents it's a whole other world entirely so There are a lot of Mormon people out there who are very, very into researching and collecting old Mormon Mm -hmm. artifacts, and they're part Mm -hmm. of this group or, you know, career field that are called rare document dealers. These people Mm -hmm. would congregate at bookstores where you would find these old LDS writings, and it's almost like their gathering place just as much as we would go to coffee with a friend is like for us, Mm -hmm. right? Now enters a man named Shannon Flynn. He is an avid rare document dealer himself. It is his whole life's work. And I would say he is about 25, 26 at the time, which is around the same age as Mark Hoffman. So Flynn Mm. gets this introduction with Mark, who is basically a celebrity in the Mormon world and to an extent beyond that, too. So Mm -hmm. Flynn is super excited to meet this guy. They basically get on well right away and they decide to partner up in collecting. So they become associates in this world. Flynn in the documentary describes this opportunity to work with Hoffman as if Michael Jordan is asking him. He's like, I was all in. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. Around the same time, another young rare documents dealer by the name of Brent Metcalf gets to meet Mark as well. And I believe Brent is a little bit younger than Mark, but he is totally enamored by being the mere presence of Mark. So when Mark asks Brent to Mm -hmm. come work for him, he says yes wholeheartedly. So these two become very close. Uh, Mark and Brent become very, very close in addition to being colleagues, as I would say. Mark and Brent, they researched together. They located and sold more rare documents as a duo. One of their best customers was a man Brent was friends with, Steve Christensen, who was a devout Mormon himself. And so he took a particular interest in rare documents dealing with the LDS. And we did talk about Steve a little bit. He is the one who gets sent the package, the very first package. One day, Mark comes across, you know, quote unquote, comes across a document written by Martin Harris. So Martin Harris is one of the earliest members of LDS. And this document is called the Salamander Letter. Hmm. This letter was supposedly written in 1830. And it tells a story that is wildly different to the longstanding belief of how the golden plates were found. So it tells a completely different story to what the Mormons traditionally know. Just to recap, in the Elias's official version, Joseph Smith was visited by an angel called Moroni, right, who told him where to dig for these mm-hmm. golden plates. In this newly discovered salamander letter, 
Joseph Smith was actually visited by a white salamander who shows Smith the way to the golden plates by magic. Mm. This is a big deal. If this document were real, which by Mark's standards, it probably was, given his reputation, then this would shake the entire foundation upon which the LDS was founded upon. It removes the divine, pure, angelic aspect of this religion and instead puts a magical Mm -hmm. folklore and sorcery type feel to it. That's not something that the LDS will want to have out in the open. Mm. But this is Hoffman's forgery of a story. Right? Like, this is him Mm -hmm. creating a false story or... Yes. Yeah. Good question, Megan. I'm sorry. No, no, you're totally right. So that's a really good question. And you're right. The salamander Mm -hmm. document or salamander letter is Mm -hmm. not real. This is something that Mark will later divulge that he completely made up to quote unquote spice things up in the LDS community. Mm. And he kind of did it. Like I said, he is really disillusioned with the church and he kind of wants to toy with them in many ways. So he knew that this would totally, you know, mess things up for them. This is all made up that he created, but made it look real. Mm -hmm. So Steve Christensen He's Mormon as well. He's a devout Mormon person. But the thing between him and other people in the LDS church is that he's a big believer that even if there's contradictory information about LDS, it deserves to be out there for all to know. So he bought it from Mark for $40,000. He buys the salamander Hmm. letter from him. Then almost right after he finds this groundbreaking find, Mark goes to New York and claims to have found the Oath of a Freeman. An oath sworn by Mm. early Massachusetts Bay Company members in the 1630s. So the whole thing about this document, Oath of a Freeman, is it's a real document that exists that people believe to Mm -hmm. be the first printed work in the United States history. Wow. This is a real document, like I said, but we only have reproductions available now. We don't know where the original is to this day. However, Mark somehow stumbles upon the original in a bookstore in New York City called Argosy's Bookstore. When in reality, Mark forages the paper and he slips it into the bookshop himself. After mm. he pretends to find it, he purchases his own forged work for 25 bucks to create an authentic paper trail. Right, right. So not long after this, he is already in talks with a New York City rare document dealer who was going into this deal with him to help sell it if it's real. This guy from New York City, he is just over the moon. And he's just like, wow, like this is ridiculous. This is a ridiculous find. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I will go in with you to help you sell it for a commission. So Mark's like, yeah, absolutely. And the New York City guy is like, I was expecting to get like a 5 or 10% commission just because of how rare this document is. Like obviously Mark would want to have majority of the share to himself. But Mark was like, no, you can be 50-50 partners with me. This guy's like, Wow. wow, like I thought he was being very, very generous at the time. Right. Yeah, $1.5 million is the number that they both settled on is how much this would be worth. Just a single piece of paper. Wow. They were going to sell this to the Library of Congress. The issue was, around this time, Mark was also in desperate need for money. He was taking out loans from all his usual buyers with the idea of his payment being supplying a rare item that he would promise to these people. So he would ask for the money up front ahead of time and be like, I will produce something for you. Like, I will find something for you, basically, right? To fill okay. that loan. And in that agreement, it could be any rare document. It wasn't like, hey, we are specifically looking for this document. Do you think you can find that? Because I feel like that'd be a really hard right, request. Right. And like, potentially, w- and I think it would be super fishy mm-hmm. if he agreed to that and was like, yeah, I can find it for you. And then like 100% of the time he finds it for them. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like that would be 
too suspicious. No, you're you're so right. So I I don't know for certain, but I think it was a mixture of the two. So I'm going to get into it, but there's this thing called the McClellan <laughs> collection that he says he has access mm-hmm. to. So it was a mixture of, "Hey, I have this item, but it's not authenticated yet, but do you want first dibs mm-hmm. on this?" Okay, you do. Mm-hmm. Give me the money up front and then I'll once it's authenticated, I'll hand it off to you. So it was Got one it. of those one of those things, but he kept asking for more and more money up front and wasn't really delivering the promises that he made because mm. okay. they would be like where's the item and he's like oh it's um mm-hmm. it's it's not ready yet or something like that you know okay he's very desperate for money he's he keeps borrowing from people not delivering on the promise and he knows he's living on borrowed time since he knew he wouldn't be able to produce many more rare items without picking up suspicion to your point megan at mm-hmm. around the same time, Mark begins to tell high-ranking LDS members that he has access to the McClellan Collection, which is a group of manuscripts mm-hmm. and papers belonging to William McClellan, an early Mormon leader who was excommunicated from the church. LDS mm-hmm. wanted this collection because it likely had damaging information about LDS, or at least that's what Mark mm-hmm. wanted the church to believe. So he kind of plays it up. He like plays to their emotions and knowing them on a personal level right. to be like, oh, you don't want right. this out here. So you should pay a lot more yeah. to have this, to have ownership of this. Mark takes out another loan from the church to secure their ownership of the collection. So at this point, his debt is told to around $1 million, which is a lot for 1980, mm-hmm. around 1980s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the people that he over borrowed from and was way, way past his payment due was Steve Christensen. Steve got mm-hmm. to the point of angrily calling Mark and saying, this is borderline criminal if he doesn't make good on his loan. Mm-hmm. On October 11th, Hoffman was supposed to meet Christensen to endorse the McClellan collection so that they could make a deal with the Mormon investor, something they were supposed to both go in on. But Mark never shows up. Christensen angrily asked a friend mm-hmm. to tell Mark that he was at risk of criminal charges as well as excommunication from the church. Four days later, Christensen is sent a package that will kill him. Mm. Now we're kind of shifting gears to how do they eventually realize it's mark because remember at this point mm-hmm. mark is a victim they don't know it has right, he has right. anything to do with this right so yeah. so at this point steve Christensen has died kathy sheets has died and mark is severely injured mm-hmm. mark has just come home from the hospital and no one is thinking he is a suspect in fact they are grilling mm-hmm. his associates that i talked about earlier his partner brent metcalf and his associate shannon flynn for multiple days on end. They are literally locking them and grilling them in a police room, questioning them for eight to nine every single day. It's brutal. And they have no idea why. They're like, we had nothing to do with this. So they grill them for multiple days on end to no avail. Then some information about the case becomes public. There was a witness on the day of the first bombing on Steve Christensen. Someone saw a man in a green letterman's jacket holding a package that clearly said on the side, addressed to Steve Christensen. When mm. news of this got out, Brent Metcalf immediately calls the police and says, I don't want this to be true, but Mark has a green letterman's jacket that he always wears. That is just mm. like the description you just gave. And of course, this is, I can't even mm. imagine, like that would pretty much be like me calling the cops on you, Megan, you know? Like that's, right, ha- right. that's it's heartbreaking. It's a lot of weird emotions, but it is what it is. It's like, this is what yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, it's like, this is what I know. But also, like, come on, Mark. Why That's are you wearing, like, a green Letterman's jacket that you wear all the freaking time? I know it's the yeah. 80s. I get yeah. it. 
but like wear something that is clearly not part of your closet staple. Totally, totally. <laughs> like it's not a staple in your and closet. And you know what, Megan? You brought up a really good point because I was like, mm. why would he go do this? I don't know. Like he wasn't even wearing anything to just like a, a cap or anything to disguise himself. But then yeah. I realized I don't think in the 80s they necessarily had like a security camera footage potentially. I'm not sure. Exactly. So yeah, yeah that kind of yeah. makes sense. But yeah. yeah, still wear something else that you know yeah. you wouldn't normally wear. Right. Okay. So within hours, the police get a search warrant for Mark's home and they find the letterman's jacket, but they don't find any other incriminating evidence such as like, you know, stuff to make bombs and things like that. Right. So they need to get him on something else, especially his motive. Like if he were the one to do this, why did he kill these people or why did he bomb these people? Mm -hmm. At this point, the police have no clue about his level of involvement with the LDS or that he's this big documents dealer in this world and they don't know that he's between the two biggest deals of his career with oath of the freeman and the mcclellan collection but eventually Mm -hmm. they do make the connection and they know at that point that's what we have to get him on something's not right he clearly is targeting people surrounding these deals they make that connection so they're like there's something going on here Mm -hmm. So Utah's police enlist one of the best forensic analysis people in the world. This is by their description. A man named George Mm. Throckmorton. His entire job is to prove if a document is authentic or not. And this is coming from this guy's own mouth. He's a pretty like straight shooter type of guy. He was saying like, if someone believes that a document is authentic, I will do everything in my power to prove them wrong. And vice versa. If people think it's not authentic, I'm Mm going to try to prove that it is authentic. So he's kind of like the perfect guy for this job. Because everyone, for every document that has ever been produced by Mark Hoffman, it has passed every Mm -hmm. single authentication test. How is that possible? Just how? Some of these documents are 150 plus years old. Right, right. It's either, well... It sounds like it's like give give some credit to Mark Hoffman. Mm-hmm. He's just really fucking good <laughs> at what he does. But two, it sounds like maybe it was the right time, right place. Like it sounds like not only was he good at what he does, but he's also like the people yes. that he's selling these items to. It just seems like the trend of the time where it's like we're so mm-hmm. desperate for these rare rarities that, yeah, we have our authentication process. Yeah. But, you know, we're not going to go so hard. No, on it. yeah. And I think a big part <laughs> yeah. of it, I think, is 50% being skilled at forgery. But mm-hmm. the other half of the job is being influential, like influencing people yeah. to trust you, yeah, yeah. to really not want mm-hmm. to look further or not want to question mm-hmm. you. Right. I think that's a huge right. part of it. And he did that so, so well. OK, so George Throckmorton, he's no bullshit kind of guy. He's ready to crack down and mm-hmm. solve this case. But Throckmorton mm-hmm. is a Mormon. And to make sure he wasn't mm-hmm. biased, mm-hmm. he calls on a guy named Bob Flynn out in California. And he calls the guy and he's like, hey, Bob, what religion are you? And Bob's like, mm-hmm. that was the weirdest lead into any conversation I've ever had. <laughs> and so I told him I'm a non-practicing Catholic. And he tells me I got the mm-hmm. job. <laughs> so they, I know, <laughs> amazing. amazing. <laughs> but he flies over and they just go Uh him on all these documents that you know Hoffman says he's procured and claims are real etc etc at the same time Mm -hmm. they are sending off the salamander document to the FBI to authenticate Mm. so Mm -hmm. they want to make sure that they cover all their bases to catch even the slightest misstep to inauthenticate these documents 
The FBI, right. they do the cyclotron test to see whether the ink on the paper is actually like 300 years old. And it basically is mm-hmm. a test that throws high velocity protons at it to see if the ink is of a certain date. So this is like legit wow. machinery that is going through, you know, yeah. the, in, the, in the authentication process. Yeah. And clearly, like institutions yeah. that were not the FBI <laughs> probably did not have access right. to this high class, you know, super expensive science at the time i imagine yeah yeah i agree all institutions that have this process now have something that does that where it throws protons at a painting (laughs) yeah yeah exactly like i don't even understand (laughs) it fully so that's how i know Mm -hmm. like how would he be able to understand is what i'm saying like hoffman right right so right 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 anyways (laughs) so then after a few weeks the fbi reports back to throckmorton and flynn and they say the salamander report is real what is he like using ink that he dug up <laughs> under the ground? <laughs> Dude, the real what? story is that he has a hot tub time machine. <laughs> That's what it is. He these are all real documents. He just went back Dude, in time, grabbed them, and came back. You know, back. it's just real. It's just real. We just have to accept it. Time travel is freaking real, guys. Get over it. <laughs> That's absurd. It's just so absurd. What? All of it is ridiculous. I'm sure. I, I was shook. Like what? I when so I was watching shook. this series i'm like no way it was just twist after turn okay twist after turn yeah dude okay other theory that's maybe more likely what if the fbi like wasn't you know at the time they weren't really into the mormon church Mm, you know what i'm saying like what if the fbi right yeah like what if the fbi was like they're not an organization we fully trust a religious organization Mm. we fully trust because that's just how LDS has been treated in the past in certain s- circumstances, right? So what if they're like, okay, totally not a real document, but we're just yeah, going to say you're like, is. let's just throw That'd a wrench so into fucked. the mix. Let's just fuck with some people. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be uh, so messed yeah. up. But anyway, I'm yeah. shook. I'm so I cannot shook. believe it. Like this, There's some heavy machinery being thrown at this document, and it still is authentic. Wow. Whoa. So crazy they throckmorton and flynn they get this report back from the fbi and throckmorton full-on mm. just like looks at the camera and is like you don't disagree with the fbi you don't tell them that they do their job wrong but i could not help right. but feel that they did not do their job right or you know, maybe <laughs> they did do their job right but he still felt something was off he's like there's something they're not seeing because i don't think this document yeah. is legitimate but i just don't know what it is yeah so he brings right, it back right. to Flynn and he's like, we got to go back to the drawing board. So they go back to their lab mm-hmm. and they spend more than 110 hours just day by day going over wow. every single detail. As they yeah. do that, Throckmorton finds some finds that some of the documents when under a microscope. You could see that the ink was cracked. And in some other documents, mm. the ink was not cracked. It was just smooth. OK, so they start yeah. making two piles. Very simple cracked ink versus not cracked ink okay okay and what they find is startling all the documents that they Uh knew were real meaning these documents existed in the lds church long before mark was even alive were all in Mm -hmm. the non-cracked pile wow that surprises me i don't know how ink works i would assume that cracked ink meant older but uh same same yeah, Anyways. and I, I agreed, <laughs> I think, the same way as you. But then all the documents yeah. that were brought forth by Mark all had cracked ink. It was very mm. consistent that way. So they're like, we yeah. don't know what the yeah, heck yeah. this means, but this is 
this is going right. to be our way to get him. Yeah. Right. Like, why Why is it just so happened mm-hmm. that all of the documents that he has has this correct ink versus we've... Yeah. Interesting. You know, and that's just like old school, you know, which ones don't belong or what, um, what is it? <laughs> right. What? One of these don't go mean. with what the other. Or like the magic right, right. eye, po- not um, the magic eye posters. Like, you know, when you're trying to like find something in the, the booklet, I don't know what I'm saying. In like the highlights magazine. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. That is, um, what is that? Stu- like where's Waldo? Being, like my brain is so dumb. No, no. Like it's the method of deduction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or yes, whatever Yes, yes, yes. It's deduction. Yeah. It's that's, elementary. Yeah, that's all I had to say. Okay. <laughs> yes. uh, so they just do some good old fashioned stri- strategic deduction and they, they come up with these two piles. All right. So. Okay. There are only two printing presses in Utah that could have made documents in the style that they're seeing or that they found in the Oath of the Freeman and the Salamander documents. In addition to that, there was a receipt of purchase in Mark's home for one of those two printing presses. And that mm. was found a long time ago before they could really put two and two together. So this is just in like mm. their evidence locker. Okay. But the reason why they didn't pay much attention to this printing press receipt was because it wasn't in Mark's name. The name was under mm-hmm. Mike Hansen, which honestly, guys, like when I saw this in the documentary, I'm like, obviously, that's him. Like his name is Mark Hoffman. Yeah. And he just yeah. put Mike Hansen. Like, obviously, that's the worst cover up <laughs> ever. But OK, so right, they right. they're in their eyes. They're like, we don't know who Mark or who Mike Hansen is. So the police go to that printing press. And they show them the oath of the free, like a copy of it, the oath of the freeman. And they mm-hmm. ask if they mm-hmm. ever printed something like this. And the guy at the shop is like, "Yeah, Mike came in and asked for a mold to be made for this." And the police mm-hmm. ask if there is a receipt of purchase for this particular mold item. And the guy at the shop mm-hmm. is like, "No, Mike always pays cash, but he was a few dollars short on this one, so he wrote a check." So the guy goes behind the shop and retrieves the check. The check was for two dollars, mm-hmm. written by Mark Hoffman. They got him. Mm. Man, what a simple, simple. mistake! Like, oh, it makes me kind of <laughs> mad. I'm like, you did all this freaking work. I, uh, I know. I just get upset. I don't know. Like, obviously, like, you know, for the folks who were bamboozled, like, okay, justice is being brought and but, killed. Like, the people who got killed, man. Oh yes, that too. <laughs> that too. But in my head, I'm just like, you really didn't have the patience enough to, or to be like. I mean, I don't know how it was in the '80s with like, because okay, when I don't have a certain amount of cash, okay, let's say I get my nails <laughs> did, right? Get my nails yeah. done, and they say like cash ATM only, it. and I, you know, didn't know that. You're right. I'm like, hey, let me just run down the street to ATM mm-hmm. or whatever, like. Wait, I'm wait, sure wait, wait. Were ATM machines even a thing then? I do not think that they were as available. Okay, okay. Maybe that's as, why. As back then. Yeah. And I think that's why. But, like, you could have always... Um, there's, yeah. like, ways. Like, you could go to a grocery <laughs> store and ask for, like, what the equivalent of, like, cash yeah. back was. You know, like, I think. Maybe I'm just speaking out my <laughs> bum. But why... Uh, he was so good about paying cash, and suddenly he's going to leave a freaking paper trail with a $2 check. Like, come I know. On. I know. I know. Ugh. Makes me yeah, so I mean, like, it's so interesting that just talking about it, because if you ever if you watch the documentary, Megan, I was surprisingly yeah. 
moved by the people in the documentary like for Mm -hmm. example his wife Mm -hmm. his wife is totally like there's a lot of people who are completely had the sheets pulled over them you know I don't right, think that's right. the right phrase, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, we're, a, we're a mess today, but it's okay. I didn't want to reuse the word bamboozle, but then I couldn't think of the right phrase, but I went for it anyways. Uh, so, so yeah, like his wife didn't even realize because she was targeted as well. Like, how could you not know? And the thing, mm-hmm. the truth is hindsight is twenty twenty, And when you're working so closely mm. with someone, sometimes you're blind to see who they really are in many situations. And he was also like right. such a good lo- liar. Like he reveled in that. Mm-hmm. And I think to your point, like, oh, that was such a silly mistake. Right. Yes, it was a silly mistake. But I also don't feel like he ever th- he was going to get caught. I think he was definitely operating at a level where yeah. he's he like, I'm above everybody and being really, really cocky and confident about his abilities yeah. Yeah. Uh, until it caught up with him in many ways. So but what I was I feel like that's mm-hmm. what we've I was gonna say that's what we've seen in like previous episodes yeah. of our when we are actually highlighting someone who's like murdering people and poisoning mm-hmm. people but it's like this concept of like you were so meticulous for so yeah. long and then your your arrogance just gets the best correct of you. correct like what is that like your power trip i think uh, i don't know i think just, honestly for him yeah. i it was a mixture of in my eyes a mixture of maybe he was being overconfident but i actually think it was the opposite where he's a little bit desperate like he was kind of acting out of mm. desperation because he knew he was borrowing all this money that he didn't have that he wasn't he knew like the gig was right, up right. almost right so he, right, he was right, kind right, of scrambling right. and that's when all those mistakes start to happen but yeah, but that. um it's interesting when you watch this docuseries because his close associates namely um brent metcalf and shannon flynn mm-hmm. they are they're older men now of course but they mm-hmm. are so emotionally triggered by this even speaking about it they both get Mm. choked up talking about it they take a lot of time to get the words out like they can't even think about it Mm. it's you can see the pain Mm -hmm. on their face that they one trusted this person so closely at one point and that he was even able to Mm -hmm. continue having perfectly normal conversations with him while they were getting grilled for hours on end trying to figure out who the heck this who this bastard was that did all this stuff and then You know, right. it's just he deceived them all. He deceived them all for for yeah. something that they took genuine care and pride in as their craft. So right. it's just right. it's absolutely painful. And they they both got excommunicated from the church just by association. Wow. And, you know, that's their wow. you know, if you're a Mormon, that is your life. You're very close knit to that. Yeah. That's your community. So it's a huge, huge yeah. deal to lose that part yeah. of you. So. It's really, really sad. sad. It is really sad. Um, yeah. All because of this asshole. But anyways, so mm-hmm. they catch him on this $2 check. And so Mark is arrested. And in 1987, he pleads guilty to two counts of second degree murder and theft by deception. He is ultimately sentenced to life in prison. And he is still alive and still in prison, I believe, as of 2017, is he 2018. In, is he in prison in Utah? I believe he's is in prison, prison in Utah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And the weirdest part, Megan, about this is, <clears throat> I mean, I don't know if it's weird per se. A lot of psych, mm-hmm. I, I consider him a psychopath or like this. Mm. When he was under question before they really got any evidence on him, he took a lie detector test. He, mm-hmm. he scored the highest you could have on a lie detector mm. test in the truth category on the side of the truth. Like, yeah, the highest you can get. Yeah. So I don't know if that raised wow. any red flags for the other people, but then 
on the very last episode of the series, they talk about how Mark Hoffman knew that this was a possibility that he might get caught one day and then he would be asked to take a lie detector exam. So he made some contraption that tested his like skin movement, which I guess is how the uh, lie detector test works because they put all these like electrodes on your skin to test like the movement of your skin. So he was prepping for that for years before and and would put it on him and would continually do it until he mastered it. So he was perfectly ready that is, when that happened. That's incredible. That's like, when I say incredible, I don't mean that in a positive mm-hmm. way. I mean, like, just, it's impressive. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, mm. see, that's the meticulousness that I'm talking about. Like, why? No, he's <laughs> incredibly that, meticulous. But then I under- yeah. And he was incredibly yeah, yeah. bright. And that's, I think that's just mm-hmm. the sad part about this is that he, for someone who is so bright, I mean, I was watching this with my mom. And she was just like, it's just really terrifying when really smart people decide to do wrong things because they can do it so, so well and for a long time before they get caught. Mm -hmm. And I think of it in a way of like, what wasted efforts, you know, for such a brilliant person, they could have put that energy and effort towards something really beautiful. Right. And they just didn't. But yeah, Yeah. so now kind of going into the toxicology of things, so like I said, there's not really like a tox portion, as you might guess. It was mostly mm. the forensic analysis, which I'll continue to talk about. So how did they really catch him? And like, also, what did he do? Because one thing that I found really surprising is when they caught him, he was like an open book. He mm. told exactly why he did what he did. He talked about his motives. He talked about he revealed all of his techniques. Of They're like, obviously, the first question they probably asked is first one, like, why did you kill those people? And two, how did you get away with this for so long? Like, what? How did you make things look so real? Right. Going back to Throckmorton, he was talking about the forensic analysis piece of the thing. How do you make something look old, or how do you make something look super authentic for its time? So, part of the ink process. So, for old ink from way back when, around the times that these in the 1830s or even older that these would have been written with, the ink was a little more acidic. So the acid Mm. over time would burn through the paper. So obviously when you're writing on something, it's laying on the the top half of the paper or like the the front of the paper. And over time, that ink will basically settle and kind of go through the paper and settle in Mm -hmm. the bottom part of the paper, if that makes sense. Right. That does make sense. Yes. Because it kind of eats its way to the back of the paper. So Mm -hmm. that is one of the things that they test for in these older documents. And the way that... Mm -hmm. Mark Hoffman was able to create that look was he would literally write whatever he was trying to write and then he would put it on you know a surface that has an opening and then he would put a vacuum cleaner mm-hmm. under it and suction the ink to the bottom of the paper Wow! <laughs> which is just like simple wow. in our eyes I guess yeah 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 you know yeah and then I who knew that ink was that malleable Mm-mm, that like yeah. just a simple vacuum could like pull it through I know impressive and what i think is really insane is that M- mark does not have access to all these machineries and all these techniques and devices right. that authenticate any such item right so he's kind mm-hmm. of just winging it thinking like based off his own research like hey in theory this should pass the test but i honestly have no clue right he's really just going wow. based off faith out of his own capabilities which is just mind-blowing to me right Another thing that he would do is he would basically get an aquarium, fill it with water and have a light source that was 
connected to an outside glass that was like a regular drinking glass filled with water and salt. I don't understand the mechanics of like why he needed those components, but basically it would create this vacuum of its like essentially own ecosystem. So then he would put Mm. the paper inside the aquarium and shut it and this created his own miniature ozone layer where he would place the desired document in the aquarium for a few hours or however long he needed to. And that would give it the precise effect he needed to make it look like the document was aged by the right amount of environmental pollution. Wow. I know. Nuts. Yeah. That is. I'm like, I. <laughs> and in the 80s too. Dude, I'm like, dude. man, people are so smart. Yeah. Like we have advanced technology <laughs> now. But even I would not be like, I would not even think about like, Oh, because to me, I'm like, you know, when you do like high school projects, like, oh, I'm going to make this paper look yeah. aged by just like giving it some water damage and maybe like putting a little bit of dye. Yeah, or, like a tea bag or tea, something. Right. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Like putting in tea and that'll make it look aged. Like, that's easy. But but this is a whole nother level. Agree. This is like we're going to create a, <laughs> a fake environment so that it ages. But it's so smart. It's, it's so oh, freaking, God. it's so diabolically yeah. smart. And and just like for the yeah. to make the papers look older and also just the types of ink he would just use basic chemistry he would buy mm-hmm. things like tannic acid ferric sulfate gum arabic that are all things you can buy at like your cvs or just like a local art shop these are all things that yeah. any one of any one of us could buy it's just like he knew what to do with them is the difference i guess right right so of course this is all science-based and that's part of what this podcast is about so how people solve major crimes through science but i want to focus now on the method of killing which was the bomb mm-hmm. aspect uh which okay. had the power and effect of two sticks of dynamite so i sort of already talked about mm. dynamite in one of my first did you know tiktok videos but i think this is a mm-hmm. really important aspect of uh medicine as well that a lot of people don't know about so i'll just do like a brief we're actually towards the end here but i'll mm-hmm. do a brief history of dynamite so Dynamite is an explosive made out of nitroglycerin. It is not TNT. Those are two entirely separate things. Mm. Dynamite was invented by the Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel in 1867, who's the very same Nobel of the Nobel Prize. But nitroglycerin Mm. was discovered by an Italian chemist, Asanio Sobrero. So nitroglycerin is actually what was discovered first, okay? Dynamite Mm. is a technique. It is actually a way of encasing the nitroglycerin so the issue with nitroglycerin is on its own it is very powerful and of course very very explosive so much so Mm -hmm. that it can't really be handled or directed in any way because it is so unstable so kind of renders it useless to actually use it for anything but what nobel Mm -hmm. invented like i said is dynamite so he found this oily clay like substance somewhere in germany i believe that you basically could mold around the nitroglycerin as a cylindrical stick kind of like the dynamite sticks that we know of even today and he Mm -hmm. encases it in this clay when you do that the nitroglycerin is much more stable and you can actually handle it safely in your hands without exploding in you or on you and what you would mm-hmm. do is you insert it into the mountainside or wherever you're trying to like build a new pathway, et cetera. And you can really use it in a precise manner this way. The part that is interesting is nitroglycerin is also a heart medication. I don't know if a lot of mm. people know. So 
did not. Yeah, it's it's still used today. I've counseled many patients on how to use their nitroglycerin tablets. So here's how it works. So nitroglycerin does come in various forms, but the most common form I would say is a sublingual tablet that you just put under your tongue and it dissolves and has almost immediate action. Mm-hmm. Nitroglycerin is given to people who have angina or unstable angina, which I'll describe essentially as a heart condition in which it literally can feel like you have an elephant sitting on your chest. You really can't breathe. It's really uncomfortable. Uh, that's the kind of feeling you get. Okay. So question. Mm-hmm. Is it pro- is it pronounced angina and not angina? Because I've always said angina. So <laughs> I believe it's angina and unstable angina. angina. I know people say angina. Okay. I have not heard anyone in the medical community in- pronounce it that way. Yeah, part of me is like, I feel like I only, I've only heard slash said angina because I think it was used in a comedic way in like a movie or something. And they're like, I have angina. Yeah. It just sounds like dirty, but it just means like a heart condition. Yeah. So that's why I'm wondering, like, is it, I wouldn't be surprised if it's just, it's actually angina and not angina. Yeah, yeah. It's angina. It's angina. Yeah. So. (laughs) Okay. I know. I know. I've heard people say it both ways, but I'm like 98% sure it's angina, but. Okay. Anyways, uh, but the whole <laughs> elephant sitting on your chest, when we were learning about this in pharmacy school, that is how our professor explained it to us. And I can imagine that is exactly how it feels. Very uncomfortable. Mm. But mm-hmm. nitroglycerin in our body releases nitric oxide, which is mm. what poppers are, by the way, if you guys know what poppers are, the mm-hmm. street drug. Mm-hmm. So nitrous oxide is a common gas that gets released into our blood vessels. And from there, it will diffuse out to our endothelial smooth muscles to widen the blood vessel to allow more blood to flow. So the more blood flowing, the better Mm. circulation you have, which means more oxygen for the heart and you have less pain. So less of that tightness in your chest feeling. Mm-hmm. Because in angina, what is like, what is angina? So it's, if you think of your, your arteries and your blood vessels, it's just a tube. It's like a pipe, right? So when it gets clogged, if your arteries get clogged up with cholesterol and plaque, that means the diameter of your blood vessel starts to shrink, right? So mm-hmm. that means there's less blood to flow, increased pressure in your vessels, and uh, less oxygen that flows to your heart and your brain. So, so when you have less oxygen and less blood flow, you're not able to breathe as well. And you actually can't breathe consistently all the time. Like that's mm-hmm. really cool, mm-hmm. especially upon exercise. And by exercise, I mean, even just walking up and down your stairs in your own home, even that is too much for them. They feel like they cannot ever catch their breath. Mm. This was a really big lifesaver. It was a very short-term lifesaver since it has a fast onset and a fast offset. So it's only used in emergency situations. It works within Mm. seconds, but it stops working within like five minutes. Wow. Yeah. So this is a really important counseling point. And what we, as pharmacists, you want to tell your patients, usually people who just got a heart attack will be put on sublingual nitroglycerin. Uh, as an emergency medication. So for example, we will tell our patients, if you're in a situation where you feel like you cannot breathe, do not wait, pop one Mm -hmm. uh, nitroglycerin under your tongue, wait for five minutes. During that five minutes, call 911. Do not skip Mm. that part. You must call 911. And then while you're waiting for 911, five minutes passes, you still feel like you cannot breathe, pop another one, wait five minutes. Mm. If you still have no relief, pop one more, but don't take more than three tablets at one time. Okay. 
the idea is hopefully by that time, an ambulance has already grabbed you at that point and can help you um, with other therapies. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what's the dosage? How many milligrams are in a tablet? Do you know? Yeah, I think the most common one is 0.4 milligrams okay. of sublingual nitroglycerin. Yeah. Okay. Very small. Than they're I like expected. these tiny little doses yeah. and they're put like in this amber yeah. bottle. Uh, you have right. to protect it from light. Otherwise, it will okay. disintegrate. <laughs> Okay, I thought you were going to say explode. <laughs> oh my god, it might. <laughs> I have not experimented. <laughs> but that's that's the episode, guys. That wow. was it. That was a story. That was Yo, a long one, I'm but you sure. know, we got through it. Once once we stop this recording, I'm going to throw that Netflix on cuz I Dude, like, you should. It's good. Intrigued. I want to see what these people look like. Yeah. I want to see their emotion. Oh man, it um, is well done. Yeah, what a trip. What a trip. What a trip. And just one one last thing I want to say is we were kind of talking about this in the beginning, but when we finished the third episode right before we were about to record, my mom was just kind of reflecting and was like, you know, it is impressive what he did, but also mm-hmm. all these things that were authenticated, like going back to the very beginning when he was 12 years old, he gets that coin authenticated by the U.S. Treasury Department. Mm-hmm. And he says that sentence of being like, if they deem it genuine and real, therefore it is. It is. It is mm. now officially real, right? And my mom was just kind of reflecting on that. He's like that, but that goes for anything in our world, right? Like even for fashion, you slap Gucci yeah. on it, uh, it's real, you know, right? Things right. like that. Like what? At what point are things like who decides these these items? Like who decides what is actually real and what's yeah. not? You know, it kind of like it's a yeah. philosophical question at this point. But also, right. looking further into it, there it's an unsettling feeling to know like there could be more documents out there or more artifacts out there that are absolutely fake by Mark Hoffman. And we will never know, you know? Yeah, yeah. So at that Absol- point, it's like, absolutely. What do we, what, like how do, what do we believe is the truth or not in terms yeah. of real items in, in our history? Abs- absolutely. But you know, honestly what this story makes me think, you know, tying it back to just religion in general is that religions such as, islam and Mm -hmm. christianity Mm -hmm. there's what is that term like religions that are thousands of years Mm -hmm. old essentially right that have the privilege of being so old in a sense right yeah that like it makes you think like who's to say in all those years of those religions developing or their multiple interpretations and all that like like you can see why there's challenge to like this concept of there's going to be so many different iterations mm-hmm. and like, like what is valid. And, and Correct. okay. Now that I'm just like speaking out loud, I'm like, that's honestly why there's so much conflict even within a religion yeah. because it's yeah. like, it's just a bigger version of what Mark Hoffman's doing oh, in some yeah. way. And I know that's, that's controversial, but like, that's kind of what it is. And I think the reason why the Mark Hoffman thing is, it's seen as fraud, right? Because, uh, you know, we can timestamp it. Like we can, because it's so contemporary, yeah. right? And and it's almost like because Mormonism and the Church of Mormon is a relatively, cont- in the, the history of, you know, humans, it's a pretty contemporary religion. Yeah. Therefore, we can definitely identify this moment with Mark Hoffman as like, this was fraud, this was forgery, et cetera, et cetera. But like, with religions that have been around for so mm-hmm. long, I'm like, I'm certain that that has happened oh, in some yes. sense uh, during their creation of, during its creation. But like, 
like it just blows my mind and i, I don't I know i know i didn't like get to like the point but i know you can like <laughs> figure out what i'm implying <laughs> no right? i can it's fill in the like, gaps no i yeah, i yeah. agree with you like it's essentially playing one thousands of years long game of telephone through the through the eras like yeah how do we know like one because i mean yes i guess they were writing things down all the way back then but like i don't know like like how do you recreate that like who passes it on to who and what if they read it and they're like uh i don't like that part and they like write something else right you know like we have no idea (laughs) totally and and uh, like in all objectivity i know that there are obviously researchers and historians out there who dedicate their lives like Mm -hmm. there's a whole history of research Mm -hmm. of like decades long centuries long research that goes into this that and i'm sure like if someone who did uh, theological studies heard this, they'd be like, there is the, those, those resources and libraries out there that are dedicated to studying and, and, and kind of debating this concept. Mm-hmm. But again, mm-hmm. I just think it's like, it's because these, uh, to me, it's just like, it's because of the timeline of Mormonism being so young of religion yeah. that, that this is like a more explicit moment for, for, you know for that reinterpretation for, for seeing the reinterpretation as a forgery yeah yeah it's definitely rather yeah it's definitely a more vulnerable target because it's not so ancient i would say right yeah i mean it was kind of like a perfect storm of ideals but right. i mean to to that point he's he's still got a lot of things authenticated that were outside of the mormon sphere correct which Correct. still like blows my mind. I mean, if mm-hmm. in the docu series they show his works, they show how his penmanship is, like how he got he just practiced it so much. It's mm-hmm. just yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And the the one thing I'll note because they grilled the wife a lot and you know, how did mm-hmm. you not know? How did you not know? And I think a lot of it is the culture and of the religion is that, you know, I think I would correct me if I'm wrong, Poison Pals, but I do feel like most religions are patriarchal. I don't think Mormonism is any different. So I think there was an element of a sort of like don't ask, don't tell sort of thing where he had a room in his house Mm. that was sort of like his man cave, basically. And he was like, don't go in that room. That room is not for you. Always kept it under lock and key. And she literally says in the documentary, she's just like, to me, it was more like, oh, that's another room I don't have to clean better for me. Mm. If he just wants to keep it mm-hmm. private, that's his business. Right. And, you know, right. as a wife, like, I will not rock the boat by prodding into his business, his personal business. Right. Yeah. Right. So I think that's where he was doing all of his stuff, of course, was in that room. But they didn't yeah. find anything op- upon their search of the house. At least the police didn't. So I don't really know what maybe he cleaned it out before then. I have no idea. Yeah, so interesting. Wild stuff. And so, wait, so the people that were attacked in the bombings, mm-hmm. the, it was Steve Steve Christensen, is that correct? Correct, yeah. And then, and his wife. Yes. So, no, 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 no. So, okay. So, Steve uh, Christensen, just to recap, he mm-hmm. was a buyer of items mm-hmm. from Mark okay. Hoffman that his partner, Brent Metcalf. So, Brent Metcalf knew steve christensen they were longtime buddies mm-hmm. got it and right. he was like hey like i actually have a friend that is that might be interested in buying from us so he forced that connection that relationship and that is why there's I so see. much emotion in the doc series from brent because he can't even mm. speak 
he almost feels responsible for the death of his friend. Got it. You know, because he introduced the two of them. And so that was the connection there. And then there's Mm -hmm. Kathy Sheets. So Mm -hmm. the bomb was actually intended for her husband, Gary Sheets. And he Uh, also is a buyer and was associated with the Mormon church uh, or is one of those people that was kind of like banging the gavel down on Mark Hoffman to produce the items that he promised. Um, I see. I see. And he was asking those questions. Gotcha. I feel bad for Kathy. So horrible. And yeah, I mean, just trigger warning. They do show the aftermath of the bodies Mm. to an extent. Mm -hmm. Like they're obviously covered. You can kind of like, I don't know. I have a pretty vivid imagination. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I can recreate it. So if you're not into that, that's just a warning. Yeah. But otherwise, it's a very, very good documentary. Damn. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing the story. That was really interesting. Good, and I, good, good. Yeah, that totally falls into your things that you enjoy. Yes. Which is like art heist and yeah. like, you know, all that stuff. So absolutely. That's so cool. Super yeah, cool. Yeah. And this is kind of coming mm-hmm. off of that show I mentioned you guys way back when is the now I can't remember it. But the art show where they how they authenticate, they go through the whole process. Right. Obviously, right. things are way more high caliber now than they were in the 80s, right. I hope. But yeah. the whole science behind it, because it's all just science and physics mm-hmm. and chemistry and all of the things. Very, very fascinating stuff. And these yeah. are the kinds of things that get, catch the people, the wrong people and put them in jail. Not the wrong people, like yeah. the right people that do wrong things. Right, right. <laughs> it's correct. I can't imagine that world of like being a, you know, professional art authenticator. So cool. I'm bet I bet you come across thousands, thousands mm. upon thousands of fake art forgeries almost every day. Like I'm sure that's something that's always always happening like people just trying to pass off art to make a buck oh totally and like the question i always had which i totally could have looked into but i didn't really if Mm -hmm. my question always was okay what if you bought this art or any kind of document item that was supposed to be real and then you later find out it's not real like do you get your money back or what like because i don't and i I think the answer to that is that you don't because Mm -hmm. it's up to you at point of sale to do your due diligence before you purchase the item to fully authenticate right. it uh, of its worth. Right. And if you decide right. to go with it, it's your responsibility at that point. So yeah, uh, I think there's that loophole there where you can't really arrest people for that. But I, I think because he had crimes related to deceiving and theft, plus obviously mm-hmm. he killed people. That's how he got his mm-hmm. life sentence. Mm-hmm. For sure. Damn, that's crazy, man. That's so. All the- he could have he he could have just been forgering like medical notes for children and that would have been a good thing that's what my mom said she was like he could have just lived his life making fake passports for people I was like, <laughs> which is also highly illegal i know i was like, like i looked at my mom i was, was like really getting heck? hurt <laughs> I was like, all right well i was gonna go just like creating fake driver's license for under 21 right. kiddos right <laughs> Also, like, also illegal. Like, I also like, illegal. Like, so that we're not in trouble. Also illegal, but like lower risk in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yes. It, yeah. I mean, I guess the bombing was the highest risk action. That totally, he did. totally. And I was gonna uh, say on that note, I was like, I wanted so badly for this podcast title to be "Murder Among Mormons," but I do not want to get like sued by all of Netflix. Yeah, so we, will we won't. Be we will stray soon. away from that. <laughs> and the only honestly and I don't Megan I don't know if you have the mm-hmm. same thing but I have not had too many experiences with 
the Mormon religion. My mm-hmm. only one experience was one of my best friends in elementary school. She was Mormon. Mm-hmm. She came from a big family, mm-hmm. eight siblings, and I would be over at their house all dang day. That poor mom, like she's probably it's all these white kiddos and this one brown weirdo running around with their kids. But I love yeah, being yeah. at their house and they always took care of me. So always had a really good yeah. experience with that. And then one thing that I know we both share is, um, guys, if you're ever in San Diego, especially specifically La Jolla, you may pass by the most beautiful looking temple that is the Mormon mm-hmm. temple um, in La Jolla. It is pristine, white and gorgeous. I've never mm-hmm. been inside of it because I don't believe you can step foot unless you are mormon but correct fun fact i guess my parents were around when it first opened and there was one day that they allowed outsiders to come in and just view the prop mm. view the temple so my parents yeah. took full advantage and they went and awesome. to go see it and they said it was really really gorgeous inside that's awesome yeah harini it sounds like you and i had the same childhood because <laughs> i too one of my best friends in elementary school to middle school her name was marissa i actually remember her last name but i won't say her last name for yeah. like privacy purposes yeah. name was marissa and i would hang out at her house all day yeah we lived i pretty sure we lived in the same neighborhood mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she had five five siblings total and she was the first friend who showed me like what a GameCube was like and we would play like mario Kart That's so her fun house. and her mom and dad were so incredibly sweet and Aww. like yeah it was like one little brown girl running around <laughs> with all these like white blonde children so um, awesome but uh, actually i have i wouldn't say like in-depth experience hanging out with no. people who practice the mormon faith but the community i grew up in actually had uh, was probably religious religion wise majority mormons um that's just the town mm-hmm. that i lived in um there is even a mormon church you know on awesome driving down the highway just like the one in la jolla but a lot of kids at my high school were mormon and so i would get some sort of like verbal education on like i always you know it's one of those things where it was fascinating to watch the ch- the change of you can't drink caffeinated sodas yeah. and now you can yeah. you know like those sort of things were always or you couldn't date you'd have to always be chaperoned but now that might be a little bit lax mm-hmm. in certain Mormon communities. I forgot about that. Very interesting. Yeah, the, <laughs> these are going to be stereotypes. They are they are positive stereotypes <laughs> that ran uh, amok at my high school. But for me, I felt like all the Mormon kids were the most intelligent people mm-hmm. at my school. Mm-hmm. Like always in honors classes, just very very smart. Yeah, they were the coolest kids too. Really, it was so. I'm not saying that that's a weird thing, but yeah. I was like, I remember just the Mormon kids. Like everyone would be like not only are they just beyond friendly they were just like had the best swag too just cool white kids <laughs> and that's all i remember the mormon kids were like the the coolest swaggiest kids and just every like i just remember being at lunch like everyone's in the quad and like it's always the mormon kids who are telling the jokes and everyone's just like focused in on them and like they're also like just dope people yeah but also i think it has to do with the fact that the community was predominantly mormon and so it's there's comfort there right yeah yeah for sure for sure i don't think we had very many mormon kids at our school but i know on some level my friend marissa her mom her mom and my mom connected on like a spiritual level because it was like even though again our community was predominantly mormon there was an acknowledgement of like there's some level of ostracization that happens and like my mom being muslim they would Mm -hmm. share stories Mm -hmm. and learn about Mm -hmm. each other a little bit which i thought was really cool 
So I love that. Yeah, I love that. That's yeah. kind of what my mom said too. She was mm-hmm. like, "I've always found Mormon people to be very like have very high morals." I know the mm. story is not <laughs> the one for that. But, uh, well, he was techni- story as Mark example. Hoffman was technically no no longer uh, you know like That's a practicing uh, you know mentally a practicing Mormon. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually an anecdote in the series where Mark goes to make a deal and he like drinks 15 whiskey neats in a row. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like right. within 30 minutes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Just to like prove he can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so yeah, I don't think he's like super Mormon. But anyways, um, you just saying like they have really good, they're very grounded people, mm-hmm. have like good morals mm-hmm. and generally like a very like kind people because they have like that sense of community like that's really important to them yeah so they project that outwards to to others totally but yeah that's uh yeah Yeah. that's all that's all our experiences i guess with mormons but (laughs) i hope you guys like the story maybe it was an education for you because it definitely was for me and Mm -hmm. i actually really enjoyed i personally find religion super fascinating Mm and you know i think it's a big reason of what makes people tick Mm mm-hmm how do these things come about? What makes people believe in them and really stick to these ideals and principles? So very, very interesting thing for me to learn about. So hopefully for you too. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing this one today, Harini. Super enjoyed it. Of course. Uh, we're going to do anecdotes or was our <laughs> our sharing and our... Uh, I think that could be your yeah, anecdote. Okay. I think that was a nice uh, yeah, little... Because nice it's already... <laughs> we're, we're rounding up to two hours All right, now, all right, guys. all right. All right. Yeah. So uh, let's exit on out. Heranium, oh. take it away. Don't risk it for that white salamander biscuit. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> I love it. All right. Thanks for listening, Poison Pals. Peace. Bye. Bye.